0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Georgina Godwin is a broadcast journalist and interviewer. She grew up in Zimbabwe, in Southern Africa, back when it was still a British colony called Rhodesia. As far as Georgina and her siblings were concerned, their dad seemed like the quintessential Englishman abroad, clipped accent, stiff upper lip and all that. But there was always something about him that just didn't quite fit that identity. It was only when her dad was on his deathbed that she understood who he really was and why he'd lived under a secret identity. Georgina lives in London now, where she's the book's editor for Monocle magazine, and she's also the presenter of the interview program, Meet the Writers. Hi, Georgina.
0: Richard, it's such a pleasure to uh, be on the other side of the microphone for a change. <laughs> well, I was going to say
1: that. Every time I do an interview as a, as a guest rather than being the interviewer, it always feels luxurious and slightly weird. Does it feel like that for you too?
0: Oh, totally. And you know what? It's because I don't have to do any prep. This is a story (laughs) that I do know. (laughs) Like
1: I said, you were born in what was then Rhodesia in 1967. Where
0: was your family living at
1: the time in Rhodesia?
0: So we lived in Chamani Mani which was this beautiful little village on the border of Mozambique huge mountains everywhere beautiful forests um, and it was a really idyllic place but then of course the the war of independence came and it became really a, a very dangerous place for us to be because there was a lot of a lot of uh, military action going on around there in fact it was one of the first places where we saw attacks upon civilians and
1: what were your parents doing in that regional part of Rhodesia as it was, rather than uh, in the capital?
0: So my father ran the the local factory, which was a a wattle factory where they extracted tannin. And my mother was the local doctor. She was the only doctor for around about 2,000 square miles and used to sort of go around the whole area with various of her children in the front seat of the mini holding her gun <laughs> uh, with the safety <laughs> catch on, I must say. And, and mostly she was sort of vaccinating people. And it's quite funny when you, when you look back and you see people of that generation who were born in that area. Many of them have Godwin as their first name because my mother may have delivered them <laughs> or she may have cured them or whatever. So it's, a, it's um, she certainly had a, a lasting legacy on the place. What
1: was your dad to you through your eyes at that age as a little girl? How did he seem to you?
0: You know, distant, I think. We never had a particularly close relationship. My mother was very, very protective of him. You know, if you'd, you'd come home from school or something and she would be like, uh, you know, your father's not in a great mood, uh, just just give him 10 minutes. Or when he came back from work, you weren't allowed to approach him straight away. She was always like this sort of, um, the, the sort of, she ran interference, I suppose, between her children and her husband. And it was very clear they had this incredibly close relationship, which in a way felt a little bit alienating towards the children. Did you
1: have that sense? And I think kids are very good at sensing this, that there was this big sort of a kind of a missing part of your father that that you couldn't quite see or touch or, or know.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think something happens in families when you know that there's a secret and particularly when you're a child, you are trained, and I think our mother did this, you're trained not to go there. And so, you know, there's something, but you absolutely avoid it. And I remember at one point, my father almost trying to tell me, he started talking about his sister. And I knew that if we continued with this conversation, he would tell me things that I wasn't supposed to hear. And so I I immediately shut it down. And it's kind of odd. I mean, one of my overriding childhood memories, and, and it's still a sound that comforts me, is people, grown-ups, I still think, at the grand age of 53, <laughs> grown-ups talking in another room. I love to kind of hear that. And that, I think, was my, my, the sort of backdrop to my childhood, was, was this grown-up conversation going on just out of earshot. And that sort of characterized my father for me.
1: You were living there in that time in the late 60s, early 70s when Rhodesia was going through this extraordinary turmoil. There was this anti-colonial war. There was there was the, the army of Rhodesia, of the, the white government there, and a liberation army all sort of fighting with one another. Did you think it was normal that people were going around, like your mother, for example, going around with a gun and sporadic outbreaks of violence taking place in the area?
0: Well, of course, I'd never known anything else, you know, and when you're, when you're brought up like that with... Almost every adult male you see is wearing camouflage. There's a big gun cabinet in your house, and as people come and visit, they come and put their guns in the cabinet. Uh, when you go on long journeys, you're always in a convoy. Uh, I, I, and as a child, I, I really had had never known anything else. And every night on the news, it would begin with a communique. You'd hear those very ominous pips, and then the communique would come, and it would announce who had been killed that day, and you would, you would hold your breath waiting to hear if it was someone you knew. And again, that was another sort of point where my mother insisted on absolute silence. We had to be quiet for the news and you had to sit there and in utter, utter silence while the news went on so you could hear all that. Sometimes I think that's the root of my love of of current affairs and news Mm. actually is that I was forced to listen to it from very, very early on.
1: How close did the fighting get to where you lived? Did you hear shooting? Were the neighbours affected?
0: The first, one of the very first attacks on civilians took place uh, very near Chimani-Mani. This was, in fact, before I was born. But my parents and, and another family had stopped at a local person's house for a drink on the way back from somewhere. And the other family, who were called the Oberholzers, left about 10 minutes before my parents. And then when my parents drove away, they came across the ambush where the Oberholzers had been killed And so that, I think, was a very much a defining incident for my family. Later, we moved away from that area, mostly because... I was about to start school and I was four or five years old and it was too dangerous to drive me to school every day and I would have had to have boarded. My brother before me had boarded because of the same reason from very early on and I think our older sister just put her foot down and said, you're not sending this little baby girl to boarding school at five. And so they moved to a horrible mining village on the (laughs) other side of the country, which suddenly became a centre of operations So we had very strict instructions. It was a a very big house, and my bedroom was at one end of a wing and my parents' was at the other. And my brother and sister, both much older than me, my brother 10 years older than me, my sister 16 years older than me, were both away at either school or college. And I had very strict instructions. If you hear shooting, get under the bed and take your quilty, which was, I suppose, our version of the duvet back then, with you. And we used to practice this, rolling off the bed, taking the quilt with you as you went and lying absolutely still and quiet under the bed. And, and the house did come under fire a couple of times and we'd shut ourselves in the bathroom if you, if you had time to get from under the bed or you'd wait for an adult to come and get you. And then other nights where you could just hear the shooting distantly or you just, just got freaked because you're a small child and you know it might be a possibility... I'd creep to the other end of the corridor where my parents' bedroom was. And my mother came from quite a sort of grand English family. And um, when her mother died, a lot of the old sort of antiques were shipped out to Rhodesia as it then was, including the, the ancient sort of 15th century grandfather clock. And it had been packaged in this specially made box, which looked very much like a coffin. Um, and my parents had sort of, my mum had put a cushion on it and things, and it was in the passageway outside her bedroom. And I used to spend nights and nights just curled up on the coffin, just so I could be close to my parents' bedroom.
1: It sounds really frightening to me. And it sounds like your fight or flight instincts were sort of constantly being prodded. And maybe you were traumatised by that? Experience that, I lot? mean,
0: certainly, I have had sort of five times a week psychoanalysis. And I think there is some suggestion that, that there's some sort of PTSD there. But but not just from that, also from things that, that happened later on. But it, it certainly, I mean, it, it has not been a walk in the park, so to say, not that I'm complaining, because I think particularly as a white African, even in the hardest of circumstances, one is so much more privileged than the majority of the population.
1: How about your older sister, Jane? She was a teacher. What role did she play in your life when you were little?
0: Well, because she was 16 years older than me and my mother was very busy working as a doctor, Jane was very much the maternal figure in my life. We were very, very close. And then when she did her teacher training, she had to do a year in a school. And so she came and did it at my school, which was fantastic. And so it was wonderful having having my my sister, my big sister, as my teacher. But I think we were both very, very aware of the fact that there could be absolutely no favoritism. And I remember there was sort of one incident that Deeply upset me. I was put next to this little boy whose name was Andre. I won't say his surname because I have a feeling that he's emigrated to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um but he um he used to pick his nose <laughs> and he had a broken arm and he had a cast on his arm and he used to pick his nose and then wipe whatever he found <laughs> on his cast and I was deeply upset because the cast was right next to me and eventually I had to say something to myself I, I used to kind of cry when I knew it was time to sit next to Andre and um and instead of sort of moving me tables away which would have been really obvious she simply moved me to his other side, which is, of course, very <laughs> clever, because I then wasn't next to the cast that had all the horrible bogeys on it.
1: <laughs> Andre the nose picker if you're listening, um, you're, you've been remembered. You've been remembered.
0: What about friends? Who was your best friend in school? So we moved to the capital city, Harare, in... Um, I guess, the the late 70s. And so this was before independence happened. And Zimbabwe, Rhodesia never had official apartheid in the way that South Africa did. But it did have kind of an unspoken segregation. And I was at a a private school, I guess, a non-government school, a fee-paying school. And my school was one of the first to accept non-white pupils. So when I was about eight, the first black girls came to my school and I remember the parents must have had a letter going around saying this is what's going to happen. And I remember my mother saying to me, these children are going to come in and it's your responsibility to be nice to them and to make sure that they don't feel alienated in any way. And so the first black girl to walk through the door was a a girl called Ella Wakatama. And I remember going up to her in the playground and saying, I'm Georgina and I am going to be your friend. And 40 odd years later, she's still my best friend. Really?
1: So you were complete witnesses to each
0: other's lives then for all that time? Totally. I mean, it's outlasted both of our marriages. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And frankly, our our sort of retirement plans are whatever happens, we've got each other. (laughs)
1: 1978, you were, I suppose, 11 years old or thereabouts. Tell me about Jane, the older sister. She'd been a teacher. What kind of life was she leading?
0: So around this time where Ella and I were kind of uh, bombing around on ponies and having a lovely time and having reading competitions which is something we always did. My sister by then had met the man of her dreams and moved to a, a small town outside Harare and she was living with him and they were about to get married. I was going to be the bridesmaid and uh, I had a, a terrible sort of uh, tonsillitis infection and I went into hospital uh, to have my tonsils out. My brother by that stage was in Cambridge. He'd would he been conscripted, as all boys of that age were, into the Rhodesian army and had managed to get an early release to go off and take up his place at Cambridge. And my sister, living in this town called Shamba, I'm in hospital. And my mother, I think, felt some awful premonition that, something terrible was going to happen to one of her children and naturally she thought it was me because I was the one in hospital, the one that was unwell and um, they collected me from hospital and brought me home and that night my mother was on call which meant that you know any major kazavak that came in from the army or or indeed any drunken driver, she would be called into the hospital to see but halfway through the night the, the matron of the hospital turned up at our house to ring the doorbell to say that my sister's fiance had been brought in dead on arrival to the hospital and my mother was not to come because she knew obviously my mother would recognize this man and and wonder what had happened to her daughter and indeed they had been driving home and a Rhodesian army ambush was being set up along the road and they had parked a, a, a big armored vehicle across the road and the car had come round the corner and gone straight under the vehicle, killing my sister instantly. She was twenty-seven at the time. I was eleven. My parents woke me up with the news to say this has happened. I remember using a phrase I'd never used before, or indeed since, which was "you're pulling my leg." And it was um, it was kind of unbelievable. A death like that is so shocking, and particularly when you're a small child. Uh, I mean, eleven, I suppose, is not that small. The next day we drove out to the scene of the accident and, and we visited their cottage and the oven was on and there was a casserole in the oven. There was a carpenter's LP on, on, on the record player. The bed was made. She'd clearly been sort of homemaking and she was getting ready for them to come home that night and have a lovely supper together. And then we drove off to the actual scene of the accident and I found her shoes in the bush. And I put them on and I really didn't take them off for a year. And I still wear her engagement ring every single day.
1: Was the car attacked, or was it just a stupid road accident?
0: it was a stupid road accident. It was just, it was nobody's fault. I mean, I think that, I mean, my father, I think after that spent years doing drawings of how, you know, if it had been at this angle, this might have happened. And that angle, you know, a very, very methodical man who just like had a graph sheet out and used to spend hours just working out how it might have happened. And I remember my parents, it's the only time I ever heard them fight was my mother wanted to go and see the body. And my father absolutely refused for that to happen. And of of course, my brother couldn't come home from university because he would have, A, it was about to be his finals, but also he would have been conscripted straight back into the Rhodesian army. And my parents at that point were like, none of our children are ever going to fight for this government ever, ever again. It was a terrible time. And my parents, I think, were absolutely catatonic with grief. Uh, And as an 11-year-old, I had to kind of try try and deal with that and sort of realize that you know, the bills weren't being paid and, and that I needed to kind of try and sort these things out. I think one of the, one of the things that I won't forget is the funeral. They had a, a double funeral and my mother was very keen that the coffins be arranged as if they were bride and groom at the altar. And then at the end of the service, I was to go up with the bouquet of flowers that I was holding and put it on the coffin and take away the the one that was there or add it to it or something. I can't quite remember. But she was trying to make it as a lovely thing. You're not going to be a bridesmaid, but here you are a kind of, I don't know, bridesmaid in death or something. But that stays with me as a traumatic moment. And there was one sort of moment of levity which Repeats itself later on when I was about to get married, which is on the way to the church. We were a little bit early. And I realised that I just, I, I had to be the diversionary act. I had to be the funny one. I either had to cry or make a scene or make people laugh or whatever. And I remember insisting on the way to, to the funeral that we stopped so I could do a wee by the side <laughs> of the road. <laughs> and that was my way of just kind of making people lighten up and, you know. And I remember once again on the way to my wedding, I did exactly the same thing. <laughs>
1: So I suppose you felt this terrible responsibility to make your parents happy after this catastrophe, Georgina. Is that what you felt?
0: Exactly. That's what mm. it's about. It is a responsibility to make people happy and, and just, you know, which is crazy. If you're a kid, that isn't your responsibility. No. But that's, I mean, that's how I felt at the time.
1: What was your life like in those years after Jane's death, before you started working? Do you remember
0: much of that period? I I do. I mean, I was very much into theatre. But for me, that was also because it meant I went to rehearsals every night or I was performing every night. And so basically, I wasn't at home. All I wanted was just to not be there. And just so kind of desperate to get away. I was a big member of the debating club at school. And we, we were invited on to, to the local Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation show, which was a complete ripoff, I now realize, of just a minute. Um, and we called it Wait a Minute. The basic premise is you do a one-minute please, where you have to talk uninterrupted for a minute. And we were invited on as the debating team, and we kept winning and winning and winning. And then one week, the host, I was about 15 at this point, the host didn't turn up. And they said, well, Georgina, you've been quite good at this. Why don't you host it? and that was the beginning of my radio career. So every holidays, I used to go and work for the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation, hosting various little bits and pieces. And radio is just the most brilliant form of media. So at the age of
1: 17, you left Zimbabwe to go to the UK, to go to drama school. 17, were you sad to leave or happy to leave Zimbabwe after everything that happened? I could
0: not wait to get out. I'd in fact... Auditioned for drama school without telling my parents. And then when I told them, they said, Well, you can't go without doing your A levels. We really need you to go to university. But if you're not going to go, you at least have to have A levels, which meant that I had to do my A levels really, really fast. I did them in four months and then just took off out of there. Couldn't wait to go, but of course cried the whole way over on that ten and a half hour flight. (laughs) Smoked and wept the whole way across Africa. Right. So what was your acting life like in in England, Georgina? Well, I loved drama school. It was absolutely fantastic. And then after I left, I did... Waitressing, obviously. That's what all trained actors mm. do. <laughs> um, and I got cast in this show called The Tart and The Vicar's Wife. <laughs> and it was, um, <laughs> it was touring all of the kind of seaside resorts around Britain. And I have to say, we, we got so bored. There were seven women in the cast and we got so bored, we used to swap around and do parts that you didn't really know. So you didn't quite know the words <laughs> or the moves.
1: <laughs> so you, you didn't persist um, with being an actor. Though. What was the what, what was the gig that broke your will? to be an actor, George Georgina?
0: So there used to be a consumer affairs program in Britain, hugely popular, presented by this woman called Esther Ranson, and it's called That's Life. I remember it, and, yes. And so one of the things, one sort of section of the program was they used to do vox pops with various people in the streets, but this would usually consist of dressing up as a giant carrot and <laughs> accosting people in supermarket car parks, you know, and asking them stupid questions about toilet paper or something. <laughs> and um, I remember they, they, they advertised because they, they were and they sort of put it in a nice way. We're looking for television presenters. And yes, of course, that's what I wanted to do. And so I went and auditioned to be a television presenter. And then it became very clear that that would actually mean dressing up as a giant carrot and doing <laughs> box pops in the supermarket car park. And, um, and I thought, well, it's fine. I'll never get the job. And then I got a call back and they were like, you were great. We really want to see you again. And I thought, if I get this job, my career is over. And if I can't even get this job, my career is over. <laughs>
1: if, if, if you crawl into that carrot suit... You never take it off metaphorically, do you? Like You're in that carrot suit for the rest of your life in your mind, I suppose, aren't you? I
0: think so. And, you know, there's just got to be more to life than being a giant vegetable. <laughs> And so I went home on holiday and I was kind of bribed by my parents who got me a Dalmatian puppy. And of course, I met a boy. And for me, that was just like, okay, I've met this lovely boy. In fact, I'd known him uh, at the stables. He used to be the, the kind of star rider when I was pony obsessed. And he once, when I was 12, asked me to dance to Knock On Wood at the Pony Club disco. So I'd never <laughs> forgotten him.
1: <laughs> so this was when you took up the job working on Zimbabwe and Breakfast TV, doing a show where I can only assume it was called Good Morning Harari or something like that.
0: Exactly. When they launched breakfast television, I was the first presenter. And so none of us had ever done it before. I hadn't done it and nor had the production team. And um, we had none of the sophisticated equipment and there were these big squashy sofas and they were so squashy (laughs) that you'd sort of kind of disappear. I'm convinced that there's still a troop of Congolese dancers down the back of one film. But people used to forget to tell me who was coming on and I'd sit there and the guest would wander on and you'd go, so lovely to see. <laughs> Just going to let you introduce yourself to the audience. And then you would have to wait till you knew the camera wasn't on you and you'd scribble a note and crunch it up in a ball and throw it at the cameraman so that they could see what your question was.
1: <laughs> well, th- this, was, this was when Zimbabwe was, was changing. Robert Mugabe was now in, in power. And as I recall around about that time, there was still a fair bit of optimism around about him. I don't know. How were things changing now that Robert Mugabe, the former rebel leader, had become prime minister of the country?
0: There was a fantastically hedonistic period where everybody felt that it was just wonderful. It was going to be great. And certainly for, for people like me, white, privileged, fairly well off, it was a brilliant time. That obviously wasn't the case across the board. And um, I think one of the interesting things about Zimbabwe and and how the kind of demographics have changed there is that it's not so much a racial divide now, and this started changing at that time. It's a wealth divide. And so you have a lot of very, very wealthy people across all colours, and then you have a kind of substrata, mostly black, that is very, very poor, uh, the rural poor, and now urban poor too. That's got much, much worse. People have been absolutely abused by their rulers. But at that time, we didn't know that. Although what was happening was there was, in fact, a genocide going on in the north of the country in Matabeleland, land. And whispers started coming through about that. And the politics got worse and worse and worse until I got to the point where, on the radio, I felt that there were things that, that I was no longer willing to say And also that there were things I needed to say that I couldn't say. And then I was approached by a group of people who had decided that the fact that the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation had a monopoly on broadcast was unconstitutional, and they were going to challenge it in the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court at that time, we thought, was compromised. And they said to me, if we win this case, will you help set up the station? And I said, of of course I will, knowing that, of course, that wouldn't happen. And bizarrely, it did, got to have been one of the last decisions the Supreme Court made that was actually fair. And the news came through while I was on air and they called me and said, it's all go, we're broadcasting tonight from the top of a tall building. And so I had to resign on air without giving a a reason, of course. I couldn't say where I was going or why. And I just said, you're going to hear from me again very, very soon. And that night, I was crawling along the top of the tall building, like trying to put the aerial up and stuff. We started Capitol Radio and it ran for a week. And then Robert Mugabe brought in a presidential decree saying that it was illegal and that we couldn't do it anymore.
2: Podcast,
0: podcast, this is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
1: So, Georgina, you and your colleagues had set up a pirate radio station in Harare that Robert Mugabe was intent on shutting down, how much pressure were you all under from the government and the police?
0: I had, a, um, I had a six-month-old baby at the time and we'd been sort of working incredibly hard driving home at two o'clock in the morning from the radio station. You'd get stopped by the police and things. It was just, it was so fraught and we couldn't say who we were or what we were doing and it was just a very, very scary time. And I was watching as the police came with their guns and their rifle butts and they kicked down the door of, this, of the building where we were broadcasting and we'd left the broadcast on a loop and of course they went in and, and there was no one there. I had a microphone with me. And I went in and I started asking the chief police officer what he thought he was doing and why he was doing this and under what authority he was doing it. And of course, it just got horrible. I had to just basically back off and and get away. Many others who who were involved in this went into hiding or just tried to be really discreet. And I don't know, I think maybe it's something, maybe there's a hormonal change when 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 you're a new mother, but I just wasn't having any of it. Babies generate so much stuff. There's just so much... Katundu as we would say in Zimbabwe and it's just like I am not packing all this up and going somewhere if they want to come and find me let them come and find me I've absolutely had enough of this but one thing I was really concerned about was a man who ran a commercial recording studio making voiceovers and so on and he'd lent us a lot of equipment and they'd tracked down the fact that the equipment had come from him. And they'd surrounded his, his house in which his recording studio was. And um, we were told that they had a search warrant for the next day and that they were going to go in and we assumed that they would be confiscating his equipment which meant that this man who had done this incredibly kind thing for us lending us this equipment putting himself potentially in danger would then be left without a livelihood because he would have no mixing desks or or so on and at the time I was very very involved in in politics in Zimbabwe I was uh, a fixer for, for many foreign crews who came out there's a there's a kind of quite famous bit of footage on british television where you can see war veterans battering down doors and setting farms on 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 flame and and the footage is quite shaky and and that's because it was me a because i didn't really know how to use the camera and b because i was just so bloody terrified and so i went to my kind of fearless fighters for freedom and liberation friends and said we have to go in and get the stuff out they were are you out of your mind it's surrounded by security people if we go in there, and come out holding the stuff. They're just going to arrest us. We're not going to do that.
1: So who did come to your help in rescuing all that equipment?
0: The same time with my baby. I used to go to the baby and me yoga classes. (laughs) Um, And I just felt that the women there, you know, I had this incredibly exciting life where I'm like flying by light aircraft out to to farms that are being attacked, trying to speak to the farmers, getting everybody's story down, filing copy, doing all of this, you know, international journalism stuff, basically. And here were these women who were just like with their babies. Did they ever do anything else? All they seemed to talk about was the best way to puree your baby food or how do you find a decent nanny? That kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And I mentioned it to one of them that I had this dilemma and she said, right, come on then. And in we went, the baby and me yoga group, with our prams. And when we came out, the prams were just that little <laughs> bit fuller than when we went in. Those those
1: mums' <laughs> groups are pretty well organised. When it comes down to it, when push comes to shove like that, it sounds like you were getting ready to leave. Like the way you're talking about what you're doing in Zimbabwe at the time, and knowing the kind of ruler Robert Mugabe was, you would have ended up arrested or dead if you'd stayed any longer. Were you reaching the point where you and your, your husband, your then husband, decided you wanted to leave?
0: You know, we didn't actually want to leave. We had a lovely life. You can have a lovely life there. And why wouldn't you want to have a lovely life? But it means having high walls, satellite television, a borehole, you know, all of that kind of thing. But the real driver, I don't want to make it sound like I left through some kind of altruistic act. The real driver was that the radio station that I'd been involved with suddenly got funding to start again in another country and Britain was the closest place within the same time zone that spoke the same language where we'd be safe we considered Botswana and South Africa and it was clear that we wouldn't be safe there so we relocated to Britain and set up a radio station that broadcast on shortwave to Zimbabwe so we'd phone people in Zimbabwe and get their stories and then relay it back to them on shortwave so that their neighbors could hear what was going on but i have to say i didn't want to go at all but Then we came here. The baby's now one and a half. My husband's with me. And we come to Britain and we're we're doing this job, which really felt like it meant something. You know, Zimbabwe was just before an election and we were giving people the information they needed. And then when the election happened, people were finding it really, really difficult to vote. Like one polling station would be turning people away, but then we'd get a call from someone who'd say, no, no, this one's open. And so you'd quickly broadcast that and then people would go to that station. I mean, I think it really did make a difference. Once you
1: got to London with your husband and your baby... What happened to your marriage to that lovely, good-looking, cool, blonde-haired guy that you'd been with or known ever since you were a little girl?
0: Yeah. So we got to London, and I was working so hard. just wasn't really concentrating on the marriage. But one thing became incredibly clear was that my husband, who couldn't find a job, had discovered Soho and all the delights that Soho has, Um, and... He had always been slightly sexually ambiguous, um, and it became very clear that he was, in fact, gay.
1: Had he told you this before you'd gone to London?
0: You know, before we got married, there was a moment where I suspected this, and I asked him, and he said that he wanted time to to figure it out. And, and we were living together at the time. We'd lived together for seven years before we got married. And so I left, and... uh He did kind of figure it out. So we had split up and we had a friend who was having a birthday party who was a, a painter and an artist and he was going to have a, a tango birthday party and he decided everybody who was coming to the party had to learn to tango and so for six weeks before the party we had tango lessons every week and because we, Jeremy and I, my husband and I had been invited as a couple, we were both at the tango lessons and inevitably ended up dancing together and then we'd go out to supper together. So gradually we kind of got back together and in the end I just said, well look, I either have to leave you completely or let's just be together. And he said, I just want to be together. So we'd had this conversation about the fact that we were this incredibly high profile media couple and that we couldn't be seen to misbehave and that actually we were going to try and have this committed marriage and that he would not act upon those kind of homosexual instincts that he felt because he wanted to be with me and he wanted to be in, in this society which so disapproved of it. And it's so sad, you know, if Zimbabwe had been more liberal, he would have come out at 18 or whatever, you know, and instead we went through I won't call it a charade because I think that we had a very happy marriage and we were definitely, definitely very good friends. So we, we got married and then when we were in Britain, it was all just suddenly any kind of restraint on him was off because, of course, it was completely legal and he could do it. But for me, it was not sustainable. And so, sadly, it came to an end. But we're still really good friends.
1: And there's the story of your parents, who were, your dad, who was approaching the end of his life. It was only when he was dying... That you and your siblings discovered who he really was. Tell me how you found out.
0: So, um, as I said, it had been clear that there was some kind of secret. And then just before his death, he started talking to my brother about it. And our mother then tried to sort of try to tell us that he'd been born and brought up in Warsaw, the son of a secular Jewish family. He'd been educated in Switzerland, and then he was sent to Britain for the summer, the summer that war broke out, to perfect his English. When he was 15 years old...
1: So his name wasn't George um, Godwin at all. What was his real name?
0: His name was Casimir Goldfarb. And so the young Kaju, as he was known, came to Britain at 15 to learn English. War broke out. He couldn't get back home to Poland. The people that he was, whose house he was staying in, sort of looked after him until he was old enough to join the army, which he did. Um, his father and he were writing to each other. They were hoping that his mother and his sister had got out. Uh, they had got passports to leave. On the day that they were meant to leave, the mother and the sister, Halina and Jalina, my aunt and my grandmother, had gone shopping in Warsaw and had been picked up and were never seen again. And it turns out, I think they were sent to Treblinka. His father survived the war, but it was the, you know, you couldn't travel across Europe. My my father never actually saw him again. And my father, meanwhile, fought in the war and, and so on. And afterwards, he went to a college to top up his qualifications so he could go to university. And my mother was doing the same thing. She'd been in the Wrens in the British Army, and they met each other whilst both reaching for a copy of Punch magazine, I believe. She trained as a doctor, he trained as an engineer, and eventually they decided to get married. Now, my, my mother's family, this sort of quite aristocratic family, were horrified that she was basically marrying a Jewish refugee. And i have sort of been told of letters that my my grandfather sent to them going, you don't understand, he's from a very good family and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the upshot was my parents in the end just decided that Britain and her family were so anti-Semitic that it was so cold and so depressing immediately post-war, we're talking the early 50s here, that they would get the hell out. And so they went to what was then Rhodesia and my dad reinvented himself So my mother's surname, Godwin was part of, she had a long name and Godwin was part of that. And they took Godwin as their surname and he changed his name to George. He naturalized himself British. They went to Zimbabwe and they completely and utterly reinvented themselves. And, you know, looking back, I also see now that they had hardly any close friends. And I can see how could you have close friends when you couldn't talk about who you really were, not even to your children.
1: Georgina, do you know whose idea it was for him to reinvent himself? Was it his idea or your mum's idea?
0: That's a really interesting question, and I don't know. I do know that he decided to change his first name to George long before he lost the Goldfarb, just because I think people found Casimir really difficult to say when he was at college. But it was probably mutual. Everything they did seemed to me to be mutual. They were such a unit.
1: If the secret had held them held them so close together. That secret must have held them so close together. At the same time, did it, do you think it might have alienated you and your brother and sister?
0: I think so, yeah. I mean, we were very much shut out, I think. And, you know, in, in later life, it became, it became quite an issue because, because when my dad died... And by then, Robert Mugabe had declared me and my colleagues at the radio station enemies of the state, which meant that I wasn't allowed to go back to Zimbabwe. So when he died, I I couldn't go. And and so I hadn't seen him for, for years. I mean, three or four years. So I was kind of able to pretend it almost hadn't happened. I, you know, just hadn't hadn't seen him again. But, but then my mother came over to have a hip replacement, and then it was just decided she was too frail to go back, and and she just couldn't cope in Zimbabwe on her own, which meant that for the next sixteen years until her death, she lived with me, and for the last eight years of those, she was bedridden, and to suddenly have this woman who. I mean I'd loved 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 my mother. I love both my parents obviously. But to have this woman who I had whose primary relationship had been with her husband and not with her children. But I guess that's normal but but maybe people make room for both in a more equitable way I don't know. But to suddenly have her living in my house and particularly in the last 8 years of her life where I was her carer. I mean I really had to look after everything she did. Uh, you know, do the heavy lifting was kind of odd to have somebody dependent on you who had not allowed you to be dependent on them, if you know what I mean.
1: I can't help but seeing resonances from one generation to another here. There's your father who has to get out because of who he is and because he just can't be where he grew up anymore. And then there's you who has to get out of Zimbabwe because suddenly you're persona on grata by the, the government in the nation that you'd grown up in. And, and even more deeply... You've lived with two men who who lived under secret identities. And what do you think about that now and the price that they paid and maybe the price that you paid for their secret identities, Georgina?
0: You know, I think... I think one thing to recognize is that my father did it for the best possible motives. He thought that if his children were Jewish, that they would come under the same, that they would also be um, exposed to the same kind of danger that his family had been. So I think their my parents overriding uh, motivation was to protect their children. And I think in a way, it was the same for my husband. He, uh, it would have been dangerous for him to be who he really was. I think all of this is about, it's a, it's about fear. It's about having to hide your identity because of the bigots out there that would attack you for being something that they don't approve of.
1: Your dad had managed to completely reinvent himself. He'd lost all trace of his Polish accent and taken on this English persona so utterly that's a remarkable thing
0: it's absolutely incredible he had a couple of words he used to say grass instead of grass but i mean lots of people from the north of england say that i used to tease him about it um but he he once he once told my mother that that he still dreamt in polish um which is just, I don't know, I find kind of heartbreaking. But what, what an achievement to, to be able to do that. And actually for my husband too, to be able to just kind of be this macho kind of boy scout because he kind of was, you know, he'd go around with his army knife and he's very good with animals and stuff. <laughs> um, but so sad that both men forced to do that for their own safety.
1: I wonder, was there anything of Casimir Goldfarb left by the time he'd fetched up and married and had kids in Zimbabwe?
0: I don't know. And I find that so sad. I would love to know. I would love to have known Casimir Goldfarb. I mean, this is why I think my brother has tried to address this in his books, not just Makiwa, but also When a Crocodile Ate the Sun, which is when he sort of discusses that, because he had to wait until my dad had died until he could write When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, which is about what happened during that time. And he tried to really drill down and get to know him, and we both tried, and I don't think that we really have a sense of that i mean i went back to poland and and went to the, the house that he'd lived in of course w- warsaw's been you know completely rebuilt since the war but very i i didn't really find i found him there um oddly after his death i was in new york a, a place that he had never visited and i woke from a dream and found him so present and in a way i felt I mean, this kind of sounds crazy. People are just going to think I'm a crackpot. But that, for me, was, I don't know, some kind of saying goodbye in a half sort of dream-wake state. And I felt completely at peace with him and my memory of him since then. When
1: you found out about his Jewish heritage, which now becomes your Jewish heritage, did that make sense to you in some sort of way about who you are?
0: It it does, you know. I, I mean... I kind of look at myself and kick myself and think, you only have to look in the mirror to see that you're Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But of course, you're not officially Jewish unless your mother's Jewish and and my mother isn't. But I obviously feel now some kind of affinity and I've become so much more aware of of anti-Semitism. And in fact, my husband was Jewish and my partner now is also Jewish. We
1: live in a time where there's pretty widespread political disruption in the West. Sometimes I wonder if the reason why that is, is because the Second World War and all the horror and disruption that came out of that is is, is slipping out of living memory. What do you think of that?
0: I I think that's true, but I also think that... I mean, we're forgetting the worst atrocities and some people are repeating them not knowing how it ends up because they've forgotten that history. But I also think that some of it's informed by that history. I think that Europe is a place of nostalgia uh, and we hark back to those times. And uh, that was, I mean, what does Europe have now? It's a, a place of just, historical monuments and people that glory in the past in lots of ways. I don't know if you've read um, Grand Hotel Europa. an extraordinary book. Uh, It's just being translated into English, but really makes that point that we look backwards far too much in Europe, but perhaps we really haven't taken those lessons to heart. And certainly I'm seeing this now more in America, where I think that the neo-fascists there certainly haven't seen Seen the dangers that await them, um, you know. Now, where I, I I work in current affairs and I'm reporting on this stuff every single day, you see the depth of this kind of I don't know worldwide disconnect between our history and our future. It's
1: been amazing hearing your story, Georgina. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to speak with you.
0: It's been such a pleasure.
2: On air, online,
1: and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au/slash conversations. Georgina Godwin is the literary editor of Monocle 24 and the presenter of its podcast, Meet the Writers. And Georgina mentioned her brother Peter Godwin there, who's written a best selling account of their family story that's titled When a Crocodile Eats the Sun. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Naz. I'm... Hi, Naz. Uh, oh... Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show, my own. Oh, uh-huh. my own show. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah that that fair enough, I've been there. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021 I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help, quick, and by the sounds of it, you do too. So this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.